Blog Talk Radio. Reality Radio Entertainment presents Behind the Curtain with your host, Kathy Barrett. Welcome. Welcome to Behind the Curtain. I'm your host, Kathy Barrett. Thanks for tuning in. My special guest today is Timothy Wise. He's an author, an anti-racist, and an educator who has traveled throughout North America for the last 30 years, educating people on the importance of white America coming to Texas about its history of racial violence and inequity. Be sure to check out his podcast, Speak Out uh, uh, with Tim Wise, which features interviews with activists, scholars, and artists about movement building and strategies for social change. Tim, so excited to have you on the program. And again, thank you for being with us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So your body of work as an activist and a writer and educator truly is inspiring. And But on a personal note, I want to start off where kind of your fabulous book ends which is sharing personal stories, right, uh, to, to understand how we become who we are. And so being a Jewish kid growing up yep. in, the, in the South, you had to have faced anti-Semitism. Can you share with us? Yes, you did. <clears throat> um, yeah, yeah, it was weird. It was weird. I mean, I, I, I did, um, you know, and it was a kind of, it was a 1970s, early 80s kind of anti-Semitism contrasted with either what would have been 20 years before that, which would have been a lot more vicious, or perhaps today, which would have been a lot more vicious given the uptick um, in, in the last several years. Um, you know, it was, it was um, yeah, it was grading. It was from, you know, maybe fifth grade uh, all the way through about high school, really, there would always be, you know, the teachers who, um, I mean, this maybe 7%, five, not even that, seven or eight kids in our school were Jewish. You know, every, uh, every other Jewish kid that I knew, every, every Jewish kid I went to Hebrew school with went to a private school, and uh, other than like seven of us. And the teachers in the public schools, um, you always have one or two, you know, who would feel it was their obligation to inform you of your pending uh, eternity in a lake of fire, you know. Um, and they would just pop their head in the class sometimes and just remind you, like, oh, in case you forgot that you're going to hell, I thought I'd remind you this semester too. Um, and so there was that. There were also the kids who would sort of parrot what, what they heard at home. And the, the kids were more just operating on ignorance, you know, and sort of not really understanding Judaism. We weren't in the 70s and early 80s in places like Nashville, a very ecumenical community in terms of, you know, sort of interfaith collaboration. So I think for a lot of Christian kids, they didn't understand Judaism. They didn't understand Islam. Uh, they didn't understand. We had a, a, a pretty decent-sized number of Muslim students for that time and place um, who had come from various places uh, in what we call the Middle East, and and um, I'm sure they experienced a lot of the same kind of othering. It wasn't violent. It wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't like attacks, but it was just this steady drumbeat of othering. You know, which which did create in me. There was this period in fifth grade. I remember. I never. Yeah, I was I was reformed, um, and so I, I never and I never felt particularly connected to the religious end of of Judaism. I was always pretty secular, 
But of course, a lot of Reformed Jews are secular, so it's not that not that odd. But I just remember going through this phase in the midst of this sort of intense feeling of anti-Semitism and just this acknowledgement, the recognition of the institutionalization of Christian hegemony in the schools that I just became like super Jewy for like four months where I was just like wearing a Star of David every day. Like I never did that, but I was just like, I want a Star of David. I'm going to wear a Star It was ridiculous. I was like this little bitty kid. I'm like 10 or 11 years old. I got this big gold star. Yeah, it's absurd. And I did it for like four months, more of a I'm Jewish thing, you know, and, yeah. and but I joke about it now, having said that at the time, look, there were experiences, uh, you know, having a, a, a principal in junior high school, what we now would call middle school, that, you know, sort of herded all the kids into the auditorium to hear, you know, a young life presentation, Christian youth group, you know, where, where the guys... The kid standing up talking about his personal relationship with Jesus. And I walked out. I looked around. I found the other Jewish kids. I'm like, what are we going to do? And they didn't do anything. So I stood up and I left. And the principal came out in the hall and said, where do you think you're going? And I I did like the Jewiest thing I could think to do, which was I said I was going to call my lawyer. Um, and he said, you don't have a lawyer. You're 11 or whatever you were. And I'm like, well, I got the ACLU number right here in my pocket because I did. actually. Um, and and. You know, so there were, I mean, I, I, I joke about it now. It wasn't real funny then. Um, it's, yeah, it, it, it's only partially funny now. But um, at the same time that all that was happening, I think what what is also worth pointing out is that even when I was catching hell um, in one way or another from a principal here or a teacher there or a kid there or whatever, um, I was also white. And... And what that meant was that, um, for the most part, whatever hell I was catching in those schools was pretty minimal compared to what my black associates, colleagues, friends, classmates, teammates, I played ball on mostly black teams. My, all my Hebrew school friends played basketball and baseball at the JCC in a JCC league. I played at the Y league with, with the black kids mostly. And, uh, so I got to see both sides of it, you know. I got to yeah. see that I got to be targeted uh, occasionally, and I also saw what it was to be on the upside of that. So it was a very interesting way to experience it because I, I could both see what it was to be a target for sure, but even more importantly, I had to deal with what it meant to be advantaged, even in that space where I was targeted, which was a very unique kind of position to be in. Yes. Thank you so much for sharing that. It's so, and you know, you bring this up in your book. It's so important, you know, for us to do that in white America in terms of sharing these stories. Yeah. And just, just I'll share with you. I'm a bit old, so I grew up at the height of the civil rights movement. So as a young girl, you know, seven, uh, I think I was six or seven at the time. I would see the sit-ins on the news. I would see there was such violence. Also, the state decided they were going to come in and do urban renewal. And that is such a horror to have to experience that on both sides, you know, whether you're a person of color, black, brown, or white. Uh, We were forced to move. My family was forced to sell their house back to the government. Mm And so I also witnessed all this white flight. I come from a working class family. And so we were poor. My dad didn't have the money to go out to yeah. a better neighborhood. And so we had to stay put when 
my whole neighborhood was empty. And yeah. then people of color started moving into our neighborhood and into these abandoned buildings. And so for a brief time, I experienced reverse racism. I mean, it, it helped me to understand in the tiniest fraction of a way how horrible it was for people of color because right. you could not be black or brown and walk into a white neighborhood and make your yeah. life. You know, yeah. it just wouldn't happen. So I was aware of all that. My family was also with that national philosophy, if you will, which was, yeah. you know, racist. And so as a person, I was separate from my family. Um, yeah. And so, you know, that's my experience. But it did, you know, it, it propelled me towards wanting to be anti-racist. I wasn't permitted uh, to bring home a friend of color. But right. I had friends of color, you know, that my parents didn't know about. So anyway, that's a little bit about um, my experience. But I was raised in Catholic school at the time. And even as a young girl, I think I was, you know, I was four kind of when I was in, in kindergarten. And I had childhood epilepsy. So you do not want to have childhood epilepsy, yeah. you know, in the 1960s. And, oh, yeah. In a Catholic school, because they assumed that I was talking to Satan during these yeah, right, right. seizures that I would have, and I was treated. <laughs> sure. So yeah. I became a, a recovering Catholic very early on in my life, and you know, as far as I'm concerned, the instruction was very kind of subliminal, if you will, just like the guy walked into the classroom, you know, the, that you mentioned, and dropped yeah. that you know, bomb about what was going to happen to Jewish people. I had that kind of experience with those nonsense. Oh, yeah. just decided this is, you know, this is not right. In the teaching, they kind of make Jews the bad guys. Yeah. You know, Jews kill Christ. I mean, how, who's going right. to get on, invited on the A-party list? <laughs> right. after that but it's sort of, of weird, though. But it's <laughs> weird, though, right? Because because if we, if we kill Jesus, which isn't actually history, that's right. not really accurate, but but if we did, and if if Jesus being crucified and rising again is the only way that the rest of you get to heaven, you should be thanking us, right? I mean, theoretically, like, like I mean, I'm not trying to be flippant. I'm just saying, no, like, I really, understand. like, if we do, if we don't do that, you're lost. Like, you should right. be, you know, like, thank you, Jews, for that. You know, I mean, obviously, yeah. again, kidding, but but it is weird. Anti-Semitism is weird. All these things are weird. Because yeah. all of them require um, a certain suspension of disbelief, right, in in, yeah. in the common humanity of the people around you to be able to sustain whether it's the, the stereotypes or the fears or whatever. Because when you think about the stereotypes that we sustain, um, even, you know, a lot of times people have stereotypes about folks because they haven't really experienced that group. They haven't really been around that group, so they... They pick up the stuff from media. They pick up stuff from their parents that they hear, yeah. you know, but don't really know. Other times, people still have stereotypes, even though they've been around folks. And it's because it's because we tend to amplify the experiences with someone who's different, and we remember them differently, right? So that story that you told about finding yourself in a community that was rapidly transitioning and having a lot of black folks moving in, and maybe they were giving you a hard time or whatever was happening, right. that... that um, What's interesting about your approach to dealing with that is it's very different. A lot of people who find themselves in that situation, right, 
will become very resentful and, and, and they'll remember that mistreatment or the hell that they caught or the things that were said to them. And they'll, and they'll remember that differently precisely because the people who did that to them were different. Whereas if you had other white kids, maybe in your own Catholic school being mean to you or white nuns being mean to you over the epilepsy or whatever, like you'll remember it, but psychologically you tend to amplify the way most people amplify the way that racial others, ethnic others, cultural others treat them. And so, like, you know, I, I've, I've met plenty of white folks who said, well, the reason they're afraid of black people is because when they were on the playground in third grade, a black person jumped them. Well, okay, but then, like, three white people jumped them two weeks before that, and another white person yeah. beat their ass a year later, and, and then they had a crummy white boss when they were 27 and a white landlord that wouldn't return the, the deposit. And they, so you had all this mistreatment at the hands of people that are like you. And you don't remember that the way that you remember any mistreatment at the hands of those who were different than you, which is interesting. Um, and that's one of the reasons that biases stay, you know, sort of sort of operative, because the other always takes a spot in our brain that's more prevalent than what we're used to. Uh, but the, the other point about and, I, and uh, about your story about the neighborhood transitioning, you know, I had a young woman who came to me after a talk several years ago. Um, with a somewhat similar story to what you were talking about. She was she was in college. I've been asked to come to her college, um, and I think it was in upstate New York. And, and she uh, she had – I was – my book, White Like Me, had been assigned as a, as a reading, and she was very upset about it. And she uh, – keeping in mind now, this book is just a memoir. It's not – I'm not trying to tell people in this book – what it means for them to be white in America. I'm saying, here's what, here's what my white experience experience. was. Mm -hmm. And some of this will resonate with you and some of it won't. And, and you got to sort of, but, but my point in the book was you need to ask, what does it mean to be white in a country that was more or less created for you? Um, And if your experience is different, cool, we can talk about that. Well, she didn't get that part of the book clearly. (laughs) And so she thought that she was just being attacked and, being judged or whatever. And so she came up to me and she said, you know, I grew up in whatever neighborhood. And, and when I was a kid, it was almost all black. And though actually she said it was an all black neighborhood. And I said, well, it wasn't because you were there. Right. So it wasn't really an all black neighborhood. And she thought that wasn't very funny. And, and she said, well, you know, mostly black. And, and I, used, and they used to call me names and they, and they would call me this and they would call me that. And I, they, I got beat up. And, and so, you know, what do you have to say about that? And, and I said, to her what I don't clearly need to say to you because you've clearly given this some thought that she had not. But I said to her, well, first off, I said, that's terrible. And I'm sorry that that happened because that shouldn't happen to anyone. I'm not going to be the person who, when you say that says, well, if you think you had it hard, let's talk about black people. No, if you, if you were treated badly, I'm going to, I'm going to acknowledge that. And I'm going to tell you how terrible that was because it was, but I said to her, what you also need to remember is, um, you're the victim in that situation, not so much of their bigotry. You're actually the, I mean, you are in the moment. That's, that's what you're being victimized. That's why you're experiencing it. But you're actually being doubly victimized. And the second thing that's victimizing you is the same thing that victimized them, which is to say, why is there a neighborhood in New York City that's almost all black? Explain that to me. How is that possible? In one of the most diverse places in the, in the United States, how can you have neighborhoods that are that distinct where you find yourself 
a fish out of water. The only reason that's possible is because of a history of institutional and systemic racism, not against you and your family, but against them and their families. And if that hadn't happened, there wouldn't have been a quote-unquote black neighborhood for you to find yourself in or a white neighborhood for them to find themselves in. We would have been more mixed from the start. We would have known each other from the start. We wouldn't have had these animosities to begin with. So in a way, you can be mad at them, and that's okay. But you also have to take a broader, more capacious view of what the injury really sourced from, which was this deep-seated institutional injustice without which there's no reason for that to happen. There's no reason that they would have treated you badly had it not been for this history that kept you apart in the first place, because folks will take advantage of their numbers, right? So, so that's why white folks will give black and brown folks hell in an almost all white space, because they can. That's why black folks and brown folks will do that to white folks in an almost all black or brown space, because they feel like they can. They have the numbers, right? Um, but they only have the numbers. The numbers are only as skewed as they are because of the history of white supremacy. So you got to also reserve some of that anger, I told her, for the society that set them up and, as a result, set you up. You are the collateral damage of white supremacy. They were the direct damage of it. Now you're the collateral damage of it. So, you know, you can stay mad at them, and that's fine. But if you don't get a little angry at the larger system that set you both up, nothing's going to change, you know? Beautifully said. And... You know, to be honest with you, that's how I felt at the time. I never felt angry. Yeah. It was like, I understand. Because I'm yeah. watching the news. I'm watching my elders, who I respected, sure. and I'm going, this is not right. right. So right. I got it. Kind of set me on the path that I've always been on, which is sure. to defy and be very angry at the at what's happening in our country. But anyway, I'm glad that we shared this, and hopefully other people will, will be listening to this, because I find that when you do share a piece of yourself, and as I believe you feel the same way reading it in the book, it makes a difference. It opens up other hearts, and it, and it, it inspires people to tell their stories. And oh, so for sure. That'll happen. But let's get on to Dispatches from the Race War, which <clears throat> I told you in the email. It's a masterpiece to me. Thank I mean, you. It, it really lays out the facts about why racism is America's longest war. And you confront white supremacy. Oh, I, I just loved it. It was just like for the first time I felt, you know, you listen to the media, you listen to other people, you do not pull any punches. You just tell it like it is. And I love that you confronted white supremacy, not only in terms of now, but the history of white supremacy yeah. to present from the backlash of Obama's presidency to Trump and the rise of white nationalism and, and Nazism. So talk about what led you to write this really brilliant book at a particular time when yeah. our country is like totally nuts and with Trump in power. Well, you know, I had done um, several books before this and, and in addition to White Like Me, which was a memoir, I had done an essay collection back in 2008 um, with a different publisher called Speaking Trees and Fluently, and it was, um, it was a collection of pre-published stuff that extended from about 1995 to about 2008 or 1998 to about 2008. And I had written hundreds of pieces since then, including a lot of pieces during the Obama years, obviously, and a lot of pieces in the Trump years. 
And I felt as though rather than doing a whole, and then I had done a couple of other books that were data-driven and footnote-driven and sort of academic-y kind of thing. Um, but I felt like with all these essays out there floating around in different places, on different websites, different publications, my own website, um, I, I felt like I needed to compile them because there had been such an arc of history in just a very short period of time, from 2008 to 2020, that 12 to 13-year period on the calendar of the Obama two, two administrations and, and, and Trump. And there had been such a – and when I say there had been an arc, you know, we, we start in 2008 with a phenomena that I wrote about in another of my books called Between Barack and a Hard Place, this sort of mentality of um, sort of post-racial America and that, and that idea that we had reached this – this post-raciality because of the election of a black man as president. And of course I pushed back on that in that book between Barack and a hard place. And I, and I'd written a lot of pieces about it, but the fact that we start the period there and then by 2020, I think everybody, including the people who said we were post-racial in 2008, um, we're all sort of recognizing like, eh, maybe jump the gun a little on that one, you know, because of what happened in the last four years. And so it was such a clarifying arc. Uh, of of the last you know twelve years that I wanted to have it all in one place and so I start mm -hmm. off you know talking about race the way we were talking about it in the Obama years which was in some ways my job it seemed <clears throat> in those essays when I wrote them and then when I compiled them in this book was to convince white people that racism was still a thing I mean that was sort of the job for the eight years of Obama. Um, for the four years of Trump, that still was the job for some people, but, but the kind of people that after Trump still are doubting that racism is a thing are like, they're unreachable. I'm not, I can't yeah. spend my time trying to get those people to acknowledge the reality in front of their face. But a lot of the white liberal folks, frankly, who even they in the Obama years were like, oh, well, that, that's sort of handled, right? So we can move on to some other issue. And like, you know, they're liberal and they vote for Democrats and they like Obama and they agree with progressives on pretty much all policies, but they just didn't really want to talk about race. Even they now, that last four years, were starting to come to a realization. So as the book turns from the Obama years to the Trump years, the tone of the book obviously changes. Now we're dealing with an administration that is really uh, encouraging some of the most pernicious elements of the far right and white nationalism, a kind of racism that we hadn't really been dealing with directly for the most part for that 12 years. You know, the, the 12 years of Obama, my job was to sort of deal with the institutional and the structural and the, and the subtle, you know, the, the subtle types of ways that racism operates. Uh, subtle for white people, not so subtle for black and brown folks, perhaps. But, but with, with Trump, you know, we sort of moved from the, from the dog whistle <clears throat> politics of the previous 40 to 50 years where politicians felt they needed to sort of cover up a little bit of how racist they were being. They had to use coded language. They had to, you know, speak in terms that were somewhat sublimated. Um, and with Trump, he just doesn't do that. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't code anything. Right. So it became this air siren. And so it was a very different kind of thing. And to sort of look at how far back the country had come at a time when it was really wanting to pat itself on the back was the purpose of the book. The, the title of the book, I'd always wanted to, to title the book this, um, mostly because I tell a story at the very beginning in the introduction that sort of set it up that, you know, back in 1994, I was at a family reunion. Um, and <clears throat> this was the non-Jewish side of my family, my mom's 
dad's people. And, um, and we're in Memphis for a reunion. And so it's 94, so I'm 26. So it's half my life ago at the time that I'm writing the book. And, uh, and But I've already been doing anti-racism work at that point for four years. I'd already done the anti-David Duke work. I'd already, I was already a community organizer. And uh, we're sitting there at the, the reunion, and, and a great aunt of mine, who I always adored, and uh, very, you know, very liberal, definitely a Democrat, very, you know, but, you know, carrying around a lot of fear, a lot of fear of black people. Her neighborhood in Birmingham was starting to change, and, and it was almost all black now, and, and she felt afraid and all this other stuff. And I remember her at the reunion sort of, I was telling her what I'd been doing since I graduated, and she, she looked over at me and leaned in real close, and she goes, Tim, because she had this very heavy Southern accent, Tim, turns it into a two-syllable first name, which is hard to do. <laughs> Tim, do you think we're ever going to have a race woa? Turns war into mm. a two-syllable word as well. And I just mm. looked at her sort of funny, and I, I sort of chuckled, and I thought, hmm. And what I said to her was some version of, I explain it better once I had time to think about it, but it was some version of, well, I think we're, I think we're sort of already in one. And Jean, you know, like, I think, I, I don't think, like, her, the implication of her comment was, do you think black folks are going to start shooting us dead in the street? That's what she means. Right. And what I'm saying is, eh, well, I don't know. But um, what I do know is that the war started um, hundreds of years ago. We started it. Here's how we started it. And now what seems to have you afraid is that maybe the folks we've been firing at all this time are starting to fight back or have been fighting back, let's say, for a long time, and now you're aware of their fighting back. You know, they've always been fighting, but you, but you didn't have to know about that right. until now, and it scares you because you feel the war may be slipping away a little bit. And she, you know, I didn't, I didn't say it quite that obnoxiously, perhaps. I'm sure I said it very kind, but then she just got up to go play bridge with the other old folks or whatever you do, you know, and, and, yeah. and, uh, and, and it was, but it was that exchange. It was that realization that for white folks, this isn't an issue until black people make it an issue. Right. And, and for black folks, it's an issue from the day that they're born and they become aware of it, whether they like it or not for, for white folks, it's like, they're not thinking about it until all of a sudden the neighborhood changed or until all of a sudden something happens at school, or until all of a sudden they don't get a job and the person who got the job happens to be, you know, black or brown. And so the assumption is, oh, well, they took my job from me. When in fact, right. you know, like if you didn't have the job yet, it wasn't your job to take, Bob. I don't know what yeah. to tell you, you know, but, but yeah. so there's that, like, it's just this, this obliviousness. And so to me, that's the worst part of the race war is that you got, you got one group of people that have been winning the war for hundreds of years that, just, that started it, initiated it, got it going, have been winning it for hundreds of years, are suddenly upset that, like, oh, you mean the other side doesn't just roll over and go away? Like, right. they don't just die? Like, you know, what's that about? Well, that's sort of how wars work, you know. So that was the point behind the book, was to sort of explore what, what it is white folks don't get, either in the Obama years or the Trump years, and sort of show the the – the line that goes straight from one of those to the other. For me, during the Obama years, I mean, I wasn't really politically conscious as I am now. And, but I was so excited. I never campaigned for anybody. I went yeah. to a swing state. I moved in with strangers. 
you know, which yeah. the church organized. And I lived with these people, and we became this little family for a week while we were knocking on doors. Mm-hmm. And so when he won, I was like, oh, I was one of those naive people thinking, we finally did it, America. This is the yeah. beginning of a new America. We can finally reach our potential now. We <clears throat> start to, you know, be accountable for the past and move forward. Mm-hmm. Well, I started to see the House and the Senate. KKK took off their hoods, put on suits, and now they're running states and they're making laws, federal laws. Boy, are we in trouble. As you were writing it, and even I think when it came out, we didn't know who was going to be elected in 2020. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I I was unsure. It came out that December, but it had gone to press before the outcome. Okay. And I think, I think by that point, I was feeling pretty good about the, uh, the notion that he wasn't going to win. Uh-huh. But I also was holding my breath. I, I, you know, I told my publisher, I'm like, maybe we should have two intros or two epilogues or something in here. And they're like, no, it's not going to matter. It's fine, whatever. And in some ways, yeah. that's true. Because part of what the book is trying to say is that no matter who's the president, like, yes, it definitely feels different the last four years versus the eight before that. But no matter who's the president, the issues are the same. And it's only a question of which of these is going to, or whoever you're going to have, how's it going to feel? But the issue, the underlying issue of systemic inequality and injustice is going to be the same. And so the work of of anti-racist people doesn't really change substantively or shouldn't, no matter who the president is. You know, if Hillary Clinton had won in 2016, yeah, we wouldn't have had a president who said nice things about those guys in Charlottesville. Yes, we wouldn't have had a president that called Caribbean nations and African nations and Central American nations, quote unquote, shithole countries or whatever. Like that wouldn't have happened. But like the wealth disparities between white and black folks would have been the same. The unemployment differences, the poverty rate differences, the health outcome differences. Yeah, none of that would have really changed. So so what I think is important and, and what I, I still think we haven't learned is, you know, in that eight years of Obama, I think some folks um, sort of eased up a little bit because they felt like, okay, things are sort of the inevitability of progress mentality. Like things are getting better. Yeah, he's catching a lot of hell from people in Congress. But, you know, the fact that he won twice obviously says we've turned a corner and, oh, the browning of America means the right wing is done and young people are going to always make the difference. And that means the right wing is done. Like we, we count our chickens way too soon in this country. And, and so, 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 and, and you would think Trump would mean that we know better, but then what happened? And I've, I've seen it since 2020, since the election, since this book came out, I think there are a lot of folks who also started breathing more easily again, like, Oh, thank God, Trump. And then of course the insurrection happened. But then, but now that the you know, January 6th committee is looking like they might make criminal referrals, you've got some of these folks that have been sent to jail, it might end up coming back to haunt Trump himself. Like, I think there are people that are thinking, like, can we just put this behind us? And clearly the Democrats won the midterm, so things are getting better. Like, don't assume anything, right? Is, is, yeah. is the important thing to remember is we have, we have you know, 400 years of evidence that white supremacy doesn't go away 400 years of evidence that it doesn't go away it just morphs and shape shifts and changes form 
So, so you can, you can, you can assume that that history is still happening and that it's going to just find a new way to manifest even without Trump there to conjure it up in a blatant way. Or you can assume that, that this is the moment when history suddenly ends. And I think, you know, we, we know from the late 80s and early 90s when Francis Fukuyama wrote that book, The End of History, and now he sort of had to walk it back and be like, that's not really what I meant. Yeah, clearly, right, because history didn't end, and, and the neoliberal, neoliberal model of the West is not, you know, everything that it's cracked up to be, and it hasn't conquered the world, and there is still conflict, and including some of the old conflicts that we thought were buried. So the same is true here. I think it's much safer for us if we start the assumption that white supremacy has been the constant in American history, going back to the colonial era, um, and it's always just a question of how we are responding to it and and the way that it's manifesting. But the idea that Joe Biden is going to make it go away, the idea that young voters are going to make it go away, the idea that the browning of America is going to make it go away, white supremacy is not that weak. It is it is a lot more powerful than that. And that was something that I that I wanted to convey in the book too, that it's this it it yeah, it looks different, it feels different. And I'm certainly not saying it doesn't matter who the president is. It absolutely matters. But yeah. but it will matter a lot less if you're unaware of how it can continue, because if you're not aware of how it can continue, no matter who the president is, you'll take the foot off the gas, so to uh, take the foot off the brake that you're pushing yeah. down to try to stop it. And then it reasserts itself. And, and that's what concerns me. In addition to what you're saying, what really scares me, racial holy war, or Rahola is yeah. how I first came to know it. It has been around, like you said, for years and years and years, but I've never felt closer to it. I mean, it's yes, it's happening, but it's happening to me at full speed at this point. Because after January 6th, we learned that white supremacists were infiltrating the military, the police. The I mean, there's always been, you know... Um, racist cops, okay? And I, oh, yeah. and quite frankly, I just can't figure out why we, that should be something that we can stop. You yeah. know, that's, that's, that's in the training, that's in the reprogramming, that's in facing the truth of what our police force are, and then making positive change with it, you know? Yeah. So, uh, but it's now, it's in the FBI. We have people in the FBI. We have people in Homeland Security. So yeah. now the enemy really infiltrated some and made this country at risk in more ways than one. So with all of this going on and the rise of anti-Semitism and Nazism, small towns like where I live in, we had White Lives Matter protesting in town square. I almost lost (laughs) my stuff. land of peace and love. It's happening all up in the Hudson Valley, okay, where yeah. they're recruiting these very lost young white men, white mm-hmm. women. They're just mm-hmm. drawing them in because of many reasons. I mean, not only are they lost emotionally, but they're not getting attention. They're not being disciplined. They're not being educated properly. Right. And they're right. just, and yeah. they're not getting what they need, and therefore they're being recruited. So with all of this happening, as well as the right-wingers, the, the conservative branch now, mm-hmm. and they're politicizing 
whether it's the Catholics or the evangelicals or yeah. the conservatives, they're politicizing. They're saying, people, vote with God. Vote mm -hmm. this way. So we're really a dangerous point here in America, in my opinion. Am I overreacting or do you feel any of this? No, no, I, I don't think you are at all. I think um, the first thing is we have to really sort of relinquish our romantic notion of the inevitability of progress. Part of what I think makes it hard for people to to push back on these moments is it's yeah, sometimes it's fear, sometimes it's 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 that. But I think a lot more it's a denial that things can really get that bad because the way we if you think about it, I mean the way that we we have taught history in this country and maybe other countries do this too, but but we certainly do is it is taught as this linear narrative of progress, right? So we start off, things are really bad, and it's cold in Plymouth or whatever, and, it, and <laughs> right. there's no food in Virginia, and, and, and they're starving to death, and, and, and then there's enslavement, and there's misery, and there's tuberculosis, and there's all this, you know, and then, you know, cholera, and then all of a sudden, you know, people start to, oh, and then we get better, and we get better, and things get better, right? And and um, when you teach history that way, when you teach history as this linear march of progress, um, it, 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 it's very disempowering, first of all, because it suggests that things just are inevitable. Like, you don't have to do anything. It's just the, the march of time. Things get better. We get, we get more knowledgeable. Science progresses. Our tolerance gets better. You know, we become better people. We brought more broad-minded. And so just give it some time. Everything will be okay. And you'll hear that from people that will say, I hear it from young people. You know, I have two daughters that are, that are uh, 21 and 19. And some people in her generation, in their generation, will say, you know, like, well, it's just you old people have to die and then we'll figure it all out. And it's like, yeah, but every generation said that. Like, I'm a Gen Xer. We said that. My parents were boomers. They said that. Every generation thinks they're going to be the one to fix it because we've taught history in a way that sort of gives you the impression that progress is inevitable, when in fact, mm. if we taught history accurately, um, in a way that a lot of folks right now clearly don't want us to do, we would learn about history. We'd learn, actually, look at the history of Reconstruction and the destruction of, of Reconstruction after the Civil War. Here you had this massive amount of progress in the immediate wake of emancipation, and within a decade, decade and a half, it's gone and, and white supremacy is ascendant again, and the former enslavers have essentially recaptured their power because of a compromise made by lawmakers at the highest levels to return yeah. the Confederacy to power in all but name. And, but we don't teach Reconstruction. Like if you actually I – mean, I'm not talking in the South. Obviously, we don't teach it accurately. But right. even in the North, around the country, it's not taught. So you, you get the impression that it's always moving forward instead of two steps forward, four steps back five steps forward, eight steps back, seven steps forward, three steps back, whatever. And so we, we've got to change the way that we understand our history, number one, because if we had a better understanding, we would realize that we have to step into history to bend it the way that we wish, because the other side is always, they're never, they don't take a day off. Like the other side does not, no, they, don't. they don't go on vacation. They don't kick back and chill. They, they keep at their game to turn it in their direction. And the people that are doing this right now and, and really fomenting this racialized holy war, as you put it, are, are really the ideological descendants of the Confederates. They are the ideological descendants of the people who have been doing this for hundreds of years. It isn't new. The, the, the language is new. The technology they use is new. 
the methods of communication are new, but the message, the fundamental message, this is a white Christian country made for white, white Christian male-dominated country, is the same message that they have been espousing since the colonial era. So, so number one, it's about relearning our history and rewiring our understanding of how change is made. You know, the second thing is, is, um, is to start small. What we, what we tend to do in moments of, of major upheaval like with the uprising in, in the summer of 2020, is we feel like we have to connect to really big, epic stuff, right? So it's about, well, you know, there's a march or there's a demonstration or a rally. i got to go to that. Yeah, it would be great if you go to that. But a lot of the work is not about that. It's not about the big, epic demonstration or the big, epic march. Or And there are a lot of people who just, based on their personality and their constitution, they're, they're just not protest people. I mean, it's just a lot of people like that. That was true even in the 60s when everybody thinks everyone was protesting. In fact, it was a very small percentage. So, so what can you do other than that? Well, you know, you could be speaking out at your school board meeting. Think about all these, all these right-wing folks taking over school board meetings, yelling about, you know, wanting to ban books and ban curriculum. And, 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 but where are we? Why are we not showing up at those school board meetings with just as much intensity? Why are we not running for those offices that they're running for and taking over those school boards? Why are, why are we sort of just letting them do that in, in effect by right. sitting back because we don't want the conflict. It's too toxic. I don't want to go get confrontation. Well, fine. Then they're just going to take over your school board and they're going to ban books and close libraries uh, and you're going to sit back and feel untoxic. Great. Wonderful. So, so they win, right? So ultimately we have to figure out smaller things, you know, showing up at those meetings, maybe running for local office, maybe, you know, um, uh, trying to find opportunities to connect with people across lines of race, culture, ethnicity, religion, all these different things in our local spaces. And it's easier some places than others because some places are more diverse than others. But in virtually every part of the country, there is some way that that connection can be created to actually give us a stake in the outcome of this thing. What I saw a lot after the uprising began was, you know, sort of everyone looking at it through the lens of their politics and not really through the lens of personal connection. And, you know, you can read all the books in the world. You can watch all the videos in the world, all the YouTubes, all the documentaries. You can, you can get online and spend hours immersing yourself in, in the information. But if you're not connected to people who are different than you, um, it's really easy to fall away from this work. That personal piece, which I didn't always acknowledge the importance of it. I used to think that that was like really soft, touchy-feely personal stuff, and I just wanted to think about it in this very heady, activist-y kind of way. But, but the problem with that is if, if that's the only way in which you're looking at it as this very intellectual academic exercise, then it's really easy to get distracted by the new shiny issue that comes along. And you're like, oh, well, last summer I was marching for, you know, black lives, but this year there's something else going on. So now I got to go do that. Whereas if I'm connected to black and brown people in some way, if I'm really, if I really am invested as a, as a human being and as a person and as a friend and as a colleague, or, you know, if I've got a, a my kids are on a team that's coached by someone who's a person of color, like my, our girls are dancers. They, you know, I have a black choreographer or whatever when they were young. It was like an instrumental mentor to them. Like if you're if you're invested in other people and they're invested in you, then when it gets tough and it gets dispiriting and scary, you don't walk away because you can't walk away. Whereas if it's just about what you read in a book, you could walk away theoretically. And so I think we have to also figure out ways to have that kind of connection whenever possible.
beautifully said, and I agree with you 100%. I love, first of all, how you title your chapters. It's just so perfect. The one about Holocaust denial American style. You mentioned in some of your travels, you go to this high school and you're talking and you state that um, there was more than one Holocaust, in your opinion, and you're specifically referring to the 93 million indigenous people uh, who perished in America, right? Can you just share with my listeners um, what happened? And yeah, it was uh, come full circle with the story, which is exactly what's happening now. We're still denying genocide. Yeah, it was a training. It was a, it was a teacher training that I was doing actually for for high school teachers in uh, in Chattanooga. And this guy who taught at one of the public schools in Chattanooga um, was there. And and I don't even remember exactly how we got on the subject, but I but I know he at one point brought up. Um, that he felt it was very important in his class. He taught at a school that where almost all the kids were black, and uh, at least all of his cl- almost all of his class that he taught was black. And he would he he thought it was very important to tell these young people, these young black folks in Chattanooga, Tennessee, in you know 2007 or whatever it was when this happened, um, that. You know, you think you have it bad. Let me tell you about my people, meaning Jewish folks, because he's Jewish. And he said, you know, let me tell you what happened to us. If you, you know, want to feel bad about your experience, six million of us were murdered in the camps and da-da-da-da-da. And I was just horrified that this was his pedagogical approach to talking about injustice. You know, I was horrified as an anti-racist educator. I was horrified as a Jew um, because it's just a horrible, horrible way to go about things. First of all, there is no logic in comparing oppression. There's just nothing to be gained yeah. from it. So there's no value in it. There's no value in ranking, even if it were possible, and I don't think it is, to quantify which horrible thing is worse. There comes a point where even if you could do it, what's the why? Like why? Like when you're tallying up mass murder, mass theft of bodies, mass theft of labor, whatever. It is, like at some point, it's just all so awful that we don't need to get into that, but he really felt it was important. And what it was, was, was him really trying to put black people in their place, quote unquote. And he did this from a position that he thought was very progressive and liberal. And the point that I tried to make to him, which I make in the piece is that, you know, using any rational definition of genocide or even of Holocaust, which is not the Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is Shoah, and I, and, I, and I have the definition of what Shoah means in the piece. It doesn't imply, for, for something to be a Holocaust or, or a Shoah does not require mass murder. It is not part of the definition. Genocide does not require, we, we sometimes have the assumption that to be a genocide requires like the extermination of a people or the attempted extermination. But the United Nations Declaration on Genocide, the, the UN Declaration on that, the treaty on that, which we became signatories to in 1988, um, which is interesting in and of itself that we didn't sign this, this, this UN proclamation until 1988, uh, and we made sure that it wasn't retroactive so that it couldn't be applied to us, you know, which is also very telling. But um, the definition says you know, genocide is any number of things, including the forced removal of people from their homes. Uh, with the intent of destroying them in part or in whole, but whether you destroy them or not is not is not relevant. 
um, transferring children from one group to another group for the purpose of destroying the group's integrity in part or in whole is considered genocide. Well, we did that with indigenous people. We, we, we yeah. took people from their homes, sent them to boarding schools, adopted them out to non-indigenous families. We also obviously did that on the continent of Africa with black children and families. Mm -hmm. So, so whether we're talking about with black folks, we're talking about indigenous people, it is in fact genocidal. And we can try to deny it. This guy did. I mentioned a couple of articles. Mona Charon uh, had written a piece around that time on Thanksgiving, castigating liberals for, for saying and, and leftists for saying that, that it was, uh, you know, there had been a genocide. And this was Mona Sharon pre-Trump. Now she's, you know, now she's like found her inner progressive and now she writes all these pieces. Her and Jennifer Rubin both, right, have decided now they're going to write all these, these, oh, my God, look how racist America is pieces. Mm. Uh, but at the time, they both were writing pieces, especially Mona Sharon, was writing pieces defending stop and frisk in New York City, defending racial profiling, defending what was done to indigenous people as the inevitable, you know, just march of time and superior army winning and, you know, all this sort of rationalization. Um, and, and what I try to explain in the piece is that really isn't that different from Kanye West and, and Nick Fuentes and others saying that, oh, Hitler didn't really do all that stuff. Like, eh, you know, there's good, there's good sides to Hitler. Oh yeah. You know, yeah. it wasn't really that bad. You know, it's, it's sort of, it's an American version of that. And it, again, it's not about saying these two things are the same. No two systems of genocide or oppression are exactly the same. But, but the differences are not so significant that we ought to be parsing, you know, which one is, is worse. And especially because as Americans, why is it that every kid in school just about in this country will read the diary of Anne Frank? or they'll read uh, Eli Wiesel's Night, or they'll read some other... But they, we, we learn more about the Holocaust of European Jewry in American schools than we learn about the genocide perpetrated against, or Holocaust, if you will, perpetrated against indigenous peoples and or black peoples. We don't learn nearly as much about that. And, yeah. and, and, and the question is why? Well, it ought to be obvious, because... The one is one that we got to own, and we don't want to own it. We don't want to actually deal with it. We would rather deal with somebody else's oppression. I wrote a piece that appears not in this book, but in my first essay collection um, called Speaking Trees and Fluently, where I talk about this. Back in 2000, Louis Free, who was the head of the FBI at the time, they mm -hmm. started a training program. This during the Clinton administration. They started a training program for agents um, about tolerance, and the entire curriculum was about dealing with bystanderism, right? People who just sort of stand by while others are doing horrible things. But it was all about Germany during the war. It was all about how German citizens stood by and let the Jews be marched to the camp. And I'm sitting there reading this in the paper the morning that it came out. And I'm like, well, okay, like I'm Jewish. I get the value of this lesson. Yeah. But, 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 but why is it that the only bystanders you can find are German and they were around, you know, 60 years earlier or whatever it was at that particular time, right? 70 years earlier when, in fact, we had the vast majority of white Americans were bystanders during enslavement, during segregation, during lynching. What do you think those people are that go to the lynching and just stand around under the tree drinking lemonade and eating chicken salad sandwiches, right? They, only about nine of them actually strung the guy up to the tree and the other 500 just sat around and watched, you know, like – why is that the lesson? And then you realize, going back to your point, that 
you know, the FBI and law enforcement is filled with these kind of people. Well, of course, because they've never really been required to contemplate or to, or to confront any of this history any more than anyone else. And so I don't blame them especially. I fear it especially because they have guns and they have the power of the state and the ability to enforce the law. But they're just, they're just, they're just part of the larger culture, right? They're just doing yes. what the larger culture taught them or didn't teach them. That's right. the case. Yeah. Because the programming lives on. Right? So if you do nothing to shift the programming, right. it's just going right. to spiral, you know, at right. that point. And that's, that's what we're facing, I believe. You also talk about the, the millions of young people now who are becoming or are politically conscious. And yeah. what's happening with the media is really frightening to me because you, you have to double check and triple check who owns this company, right? Yeah. Where are their political views? Are they a Trump supporter or a MAGA supporter? And, you know, I do this myself, but in this world right now with all the social media, with all the lies, you know, there's no protection. There's no monitoring, really, Uh, especially since Elon Musk took over Twitter, which used to be for a lot of us. um, You would get a headline. It would be a factual headline. Then you could do your own research, whether you, you know, went into Twitter or you got your uh, information someplace else. Now right. it's successful for the right. I cannot believe that a man with all that he has has purchased Twitter to do what he's doing with it, which is, it, yeah. it really is horrendous. So how do young people now coming forward with all of this technology, which is great and evil at the same time, mm. how do they really start to, with the, the not knowing, you know, who owns this or who owns that, even if you research it, it changes so frequently. And one company is led into one company. I mean, I try to research every product I bring into my house because I don't want to buy something uh, from somebody that's sinking money into the Republican party. I'm sorry, I just don't. Hopefully one day it'll change around. I don't think it will. I think every person has to be voted out of office. Democrats have to also step up and we have to weed some of those out because some of them are yeah. on the Republican payroll, so on and so forth. How do these young people in this time find their way with all the lies and the... Um, well, the good, the good news is, the good news is um, Twitter has already in the last several years become what I think Facebook had become prior to that, which is a place that most of the young, young folks don't even go. Like my, my kids don't even like they have Twitter accounts, so they don't even check them. So they've already moved on. So the good news mm-hmm. is the, the younger folks who were relying on for so much of the, the saving of the world, uh, they're not, they're not really on there listening to Nick Fuentes and, and Jack Posobiec and these fools, you know, that Elon has uh, Andrew Anglin and these fools that he has unleashed uh, recently. They're on TikTok, they're on Instagram, or they're doing their own thing. And there are problems with all these platforms, let's be very clear. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but, but so I think there are two things. One is good news, one is, is could be good news, is that young folks are actually quite a bit more adept at sifting through the noise that comes their way than their parents and grandparents are. So actually, most of the trouble that Elon is creating and most of the trouble that Mark Zuckerberg created at Facebook during the 2016 election 
it wasn't young people that were the problem, right? It was their parents. Yeah. It was their grandparents sending yeah. ridiculous memes that they couldn't even understand and sending, you know, go, going on these threads and spreading conspiracy theories. You know, QAnon was not created by a 17-year-old. And most right. of the people following it are, are not my kids' age. They're not 20. They're not 20. These are not Zoomers. These are like boomers and older who think that everybody's a sex trafficker and a Satanist and a cannibal. Like that, like young people are like, that's nuts. That makes no sense at all. So, so I'm, I'm actually more <laughs> encouraged by young people's ability to look at something and go, eh, I don't know about that because they know they're being bombarded with noise all the time. And so in some ways they're better at, at figuring it out than we are. Now, in order to make sure that remains the case, though, and to really cement that in place, I do think that we need to be one of the things that we should be pushing for in our schools, in addition to teaching real history, no matter what these right-wing folks say, in addition to making sure that we're there for our LGBTQ students and, and, and staff and faculty, and that we're able to meet their needs rather than act like they don't exist, as, as some are encouraging us to do in, in states around the country. Um, we also need to be teaching research skills very early and media literacy very early um, because one of the dangers is that even though I think young people right now are, are, are better at it than their parents, they could still be better than they are. Like just because you're better than some 70-year-old some or some 54-year-old like me, that's, not, that's no great shakes. Like you need to make sure that you're better than you are at also – telling truth from fiction and separating the wheat from the chaff. And schools could begin to do that. We should be teaching from a very early age young people how to do research. And I don't mean like, you know, college-level, graduate school-level stuff. I just mean how to check your sources, how to find verification, you know, what does collaboration – I mean, what does uh, a corroborate, a corroboration look like if you're looking mm -hmm. for corroboration on a particular data point or a particular claim, how, you know, finding three or four sources – I remember my kids when they were in early grades, you know, their teachers telling them, if you're going to look something up on Wikipedia, you we're going to for a paper or something, we're going to require you to go and follow at least three or four of the links that are on that page to actually verify that the Wikipedia page is accurate. Because anybody yeah. can put anything on a Wikipedia page, and until it gets caught, it can be there misleading people. So you got to so so they were being taught that, but I don't think most schools do that. And so really figuring out a way to teach those – and I don't even just mean political media. I mean commercial media. I mean teaching young people how to, how to look at a commercial for a product and know when they're being lied to and played, right? Mm -hmm. Know when, when a claim is being oversold, like, oh, this pill will make you feel better. Oh, this toothpaste will make your teeth gleam. Oh, this tennis shoe will make you run faster. Like whatever it is that they're being sold, and young people are being sold all the time, yeah. getting them to also understand – how to how to see through that, how to think critically about the messages they're receiving. Because if we did that, if we really taught media literacy, both social media and legacy media, commercial media, political media, um, at an early age, I'm talking, you know, elementary school level, age-appropriate level, by the time that they became adults, they wouldn't fall into these ridiculous rabbit holes because they would understand, like, oh, if someone says that Hillary Clinton is harvesting adrenochrome from babies uh, mm. to keep her young and, and, and vibrant, they would be able to actually know, oh, adrenochrome, that's something Hunter Thompson made up in a novel 50 years ago. Right. It's right. not a thing. 
Like, it's, this is just, the, you know, and they know that because they would know where to find that information, and they wouldn't mm-hmm. just hop on some 4chan meme board or Reddit thread. You know, same thing with COVID. Like, yeah, you know, you could get on Reddit and listen to Chia Mama 419 tell you all the home remedies for it, that you don't need a vaccine and you don't need to wear a mask. What you need is to, you know, like shoot up sunflower oil or whatever. But, you know, but they would understand that that's right. not real if they were taught literacy, media literacy and, and, and research from, a, from an early age. Yes, you're absolutely right about that. And thank you for sharing it. And also, we're not taught or emotional intelligence. Right. And that should be taught from kindergarten on up, really. You know, oh, sure, sure. Within the level that you know, they can be taught, but it's something when you think about, especially now with all the technology, right. you know, they're, we're distant from each other, especially the young people. Yeah. So, I, uh, I mean, I think that's incredibly important. And then kids would be more self-sufficient. They would know how to find their center in a non-religious right. way so no one's insulted. They would have the right. skills that they need to, you know, not be reactive to everything, to really be able to process it from the get Well, and part of, that, part of that is making sure that they understand how, and I notice it with me, so I'm sure it's true for younger people, how, how the technology really rewires our brain. I mean, I mean, this is no great revelation that I'm sharing here, but, you know, I noticed that my attention span is way different yes. than it was 30 years ago. My ability to stay focused on a task, my ability to push through um, frustration is less. I, I, I easily get distracted, right? Um, mm. Why? Well, because when you spend a lot of time on your screen, and you're on social media and you're moving from one thing to the next and you're getting and, you know, social media and other Internet technology, it's really sort of it's rooted in this idea of giving you this this dopamine hit. You know, you post something, it gets a like, it gets shared, you have followers, da, 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 da. All this stuff happens. And and what happens is your brain gets so used to that. It gets so used to a certain degree of serotonin, a certain degree of dopamine, a certain degree of, of, of exhilaration that when you experience a, a trough in that, a drop-off in that, your emotional intelligence, if it's not there, and your ability, your frustration tolerance, if it's not there, or if it's been altered by all this time that you're spending in this unreal space, gets you, you know, it makes your anxiety higher, it, it's connected to anxiety and depression. It's connected to, to you know, feelings of of of, of ennui and and frustration and and mm. angst. And it's it's unhealthy. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't spend time in those spaces. But part of of not letting that become a problem is is teaching young people how to know what's happening to them when yeah. they're feeling that frustration, when they feel that need, which adults feel too, to like. I got to get this tweet out. I got to get this post out. I got to, I got to, I got to send this picture out right now. I got something just happened on the news and I got to be the first to say this. Like, wait, what, what, like, why? Like what's going on that you need to say so badly right now, if we can at least get some self-awareness that that's happening to us, then it allows us to breathe and to step back from it a minute. The problem is when we don't know that that's happening, when we don't have self-awareness, then we just keep repeating these patterns like a gerbil on a wheel as opposed to saying like, oh, wait, I'm a gerbil on a wheel. 
okay, I'm doing what gerbils on wheels do, but I don't need to run faster because I'm not going to go, I'm not going anywhere. It's a wheel. I'm going to be in this cage. Like, this is it. So let's sort of figure out maybe a different game to play or let's at least settle down so I don't have a little squirrel heart attack trying to do something else, you know, like, (laughs) like just, you know, just, just a little, a little self-awareness goes a long way toward allowing us to step back from it and go, you know, if I don't post this right now, it's okay. Um, Because this 280 character thing that I was going to put out in the world is probably not going to be the difference between war and peace. So if I need to step back from it a second and maybe think about how I'm saying it, Maybe this level of snark isn't helpful. Maybe I could right. say this in a more kind way. Maybe I could just not say it at all and go do something else. Like just figuring out a way to take a breath. You know, I've, I've joked for a long time that our our keyboards need a button. <laughs> that 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 whenever you're posting something on social media, there's a little button on your keyboard that you have to hit before you're allowed to send it. And the button will say, you know, like I'm looking at mine here, it says delete and return and shift and control. And there would be another button that says, eh, do you really want to say that? And yeah. you and, and the rule would be you have to hit that button to confirm that you really want to say it. Because as you're looking at it, you're like, oh, that's the, eh, do I really want to say that button? Eh, maybe not. Maybe I'll wait 10 minutes. And then in 10 minutes, the desire to flame somebody and go off on them has passed. And I'm like, oh, True. you know, I've, I'll go do something else, you know. Very, so. very wise advice. I love it. So you've traveled a great deal, as we spoke about, educating white people about the denial of inequity in brown people and what they experience and how really it holds us back as a country. So as an educator and one who has done a lot of interacting with people, what do you believe, let's summarize for people, what do you believe we must do to end white supremacy and for multiracial democracy to finally tri- triumph? Well, That's a big I question, mean, but I know you yeah. can summarize it. Um, well, I, I think we're, it, I think it's a, it's a big question with an answer that's far too complex for this one um, 54-year-old white guy to have the answer to. But I will say that I think we, uh, in addition to some things I've already mentioned, which is to, you know, really come to terms with history and be honest about it and to learn to think critically about the messages that we are receiving politically, commercially, and otherwise, other ways. Um, I think we really are going to have to, at, at, at a cultural level and a policy level, have a shift. The cultural level, which is a longer-term project, I guess, um, is we're going to really have to be willing to challenge some of the most fundamental, elemental aspects of our culture and our cultural narrative. And it's very hard to do. And this is why I say it's a long-term project, because the thing that I'm convinced more than anything keeps white supremacy in place, both ideologically at some level, sometimes it's conscious, a lot of times it's subconscious, but certainly institutionally and structurally, Um, is this sort of underlying story that we tell about America. And that is this idea that, you know, in America, anyone can make it if they try hard. And so if you didn't make it, you just need to try harder. Everything is on you. Wherever you end up is about you. That notion of rugged individualism, of meritocracy, that is the linchpin to me of both racial inequality and economic inequality 
in this country and gender inequality in this country because if I believe that, and, and that is the narrative, that is the secular gospel, that is Genesis 1-1 in the Bible of America, right, uh, that anybody can make it. Well, if you believe that and if you're taught that and you internalize that and then you look around and you see broad and vast and deep disparities between white and non-white, men and women, rich and poor, your default assumption when you see those disparities is going to be what? Well, it's going to be, I guess these people are just better and smarter and harder working and more moral and make better choices, and these people are worse, and they make worse choices, because that is what the Genesis 1-1 of the Bible of America told you to assume. And so I don't think we can ever really fundamentally alter the, the systemic reality of white supremacy or the mentality of it unless we undermine our faith in that notion of rugged individualism and meritocracy. And it's hard to do. I talk in my book, Under the Affluence, which came out in 2015, which is an examination of race and class inequality and how they interact in this country. I talk about that a little bit in my last chapter, about some of the ways that we begin to break that down. Part of it is because it's hard, right? It's like going into a church on Sunday and like right after the minister or the priest or the preacher gives the sermon – you just sort of jump up in the third row of pews and you're like, man, eh, it was great, but God doesn't exist, right? So why are we here? Like no one, exactly. no one likes you when you say that. They don't invite you back for punching cookies or whatever they do after church. Um, so in order to do it, I think the only real way is we have to start um, being humble enough to tell our stories with our colleagues, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers about how we got where we are, because if we're honest about how we got where we are in the world, especially if we've done okay, right, especially mm-hmm. if, we've, if we've accomplished a little something-something and we've made a little money and we've got some professional position and prestige, um, we got to be honest about how that happened, because we all had help. Every one of us had help. Yeah. Some of that help was connected to race. Some of it was connected to class. Some of it was connected to sex or gender. Some of it was just luck, right? Some of it was just the person you met who walked into your life and gave you an opportunity that if you hadn't met them, your life would have been different. Like we all have got stories like that. And the, mm-hmm. the, the importance of those stories is they give the lie to the myth of rugged individualism because what they prove to us is what we know deep down, which is none of us are individuals. All of us, humans are social creatures. We're raised in community starting with our family, we've all had help. None of us were raised on an island by a porpoise, right? We all had help. And so every one of us has been taught language and custom. And and even if we actually did make, quote, unquote, good choices that helped us succeed, even if we did work hard and have a good work ethic, where did we get that? Probably it was taught to us or it was modeled for us. And if we didn't have that, is that our fault? If I had a parent, you know, my dad was an addict and an alcoholic. So his modeling for me when it came to it was not that great. So now luckily, you know, I I didn't fall into some of those traps. I do have a pretty lousy work ethic because the work ethic thing was modeled. You know, I mean, I've written nine books, but if I had a better role model for work ethic, I'd have written 20. Let's just say it that way. But, but like, but seriously, like if, if, so you can't even, and even if you, even if you were genetically like these racists that are like, well, so-and-so is genetically, even if that were true and it's absurd to think that there's genetic superiority and inferiority among racial groups. But even if there were something to that, well, how did you earn your genes? 
like you didn't, right? It's still got nothing to do with you. That's like saying, well, you've got blue eyes, so therefore, or you've got brown eyes, or you've got lactose intolerance. You didn't earn any of these biological, genetic, cultural, you didn't earn any of it. It's, right. it's about stuff that happened over which you had largely no control. So part of it is being humble enough to retell our own story as a way to retell the American story. Because if we could do that, mm. then we could step yeah. back a little bit from this, this triumphalism that white people engage in, that men engage in, that rich people engage in, which is, well, I worked hard for everything I have. Give me a break. No, you didn't. You might have worked hard, but so did that other person who doesn't have anything. You know, right. and, and, and right. the vast majority of people in, in a competitive society have to work harder. They don't survive. So it doesn't mean anything. But, we, but our lack of humility keeps us from doing that. So, number one, we got to do that, and that's a long-term thing. Yeah. Um, on a policy level, look, we have, to be, we have to get serious about really repairing the damage that has been done. Now, I don't know what that looks like. I, I'm, not a pol- I'm not enough of a policy expert or economist to know what it looks like. But I know there's got to be some systemic reparation that is made to the victims of white supremacy, and particularly those who were descended from persons who were enslaved on this continent, as well as, I think, for indigenous people whose land was stolen, like real reparations, not like, oh, here's some land, have a casino, good day, you no, know, but I like real repair. Yep. Now, what does that look like? I don't know. Like, I, no, that's, we got to have that conversation. There are some models yeah. out there for it some of which make sense to me, some of which don't. I know it makes white people very nervous whenever we talk about reparation mm-hmm. of any kind because we have this impression in our mind that it means that, like, every month on our Excel spreadsheet on our budget, we're going to have, like, a black people budget line. Like, it's going to be the mm-hmm. water bill, the cable bill. Oh, God, there's the black people bill. That's, I don't think that's what anyone means. It's certainly not what I right. mean. We talk about reparation. We're talking about the collective effort by the government and by other private actors that benefited because there are a lot of companies around today insurance companies banks that descend directly from insurance companies and banks during the period of enslavement Mm -hmm. whose wealth has been dependent on white supremacy do i believe that the government and those private entities owe a debt absolutely and i don't think there's a statute of limitations on it just because we ran out the clock all these years and we didn't pay it so now it's too late that doesn't mean you know, Jim and Susie Miller in, you know, Morristown, Tennessee, have got to write a check to black people every month. It means that the government of the United States, which sanctioned and allowed and profited from the enslavement of human beings, has to do something collectively. It's not about individual checks to black people. It's about saying, what are we going to do systemically and, and collectively to put money back into those communities that would have been there anyway? had it not been stolen first, right? It's not, yeah. it's not giving what wasn't earned or owed. It's giving back what was taken, right, mm-hmm. which is what we do. That's just a measure of justice. Now, is it complicated? Yes. Is it going to be very difficult to do? Absolutely. Is it likely to happen anytime soon? No. But that's the conversation we need to start having, at least setting the moral and ethical groundwork for something to be done. And what that is can be determined as we move forward, but we got at least set the table with the ethical foundation. And I think that's what we could be doing right now. That's brilliant. And, you know, I also think that we have to get or lose the idea of, well, it may take a while. Well, it can take a while. Of course it will. Yeah. You know, I know that's the reality, but I'm just saying in terms of spirit and urgency, it has to happen because our whole country history is based on very slow moving 
you know, something has to happen. People have to get fed up. Black and brown people come forth, the civil rights movement, so on and so yeah. forth. It shouldn't take this long. Enough is enough already. I'm feeling it on my end, and I'm not, you know, I have the privilege of living a life and gaining benefit to the color right. of my skin. I have not had sure. to endure what black and brown and indigenous people have had to go through, and I want to acknowledge it. I know other people want to acknowledge it, and I agree with you. I think it's brilliant, and I I would love to put the spark to get that happening. Now. I mean, something, yeah, I mean, I think a couple of things. I mean, I think I think something needs to happen quickly, but I think also at the same time, I, I do want to I do want to make very very clear. The reality is, this is a problem that that has been around for so incredibly long, and it's yeah. so deeply rooted that it's like taking out a stump of a tree, right? Like if the roots are really really deep, that's going to take a lot longer than if it's a more relatively new sapling or, a, or you know. And so in a sense, like we've got to understand, and I think Black people have to have this understanding, and Indigenous people have this understanding, is that impatience is justified morally and ethically. Impatience is, in fact, a moral and ethical imperative. But on a practical level, impatience will also kill you because what will happen is you'll burn out trying to get it mm. done. You want to see it so badly. Look, I'm 54. I would very much love to see the end of white supremacy in my lifetime, but I'm not a fool. Um, and, and I'm not going to bank on that. I'm not going to, I'm not a gambling man, but if I were, I would not put all my money on the end of white supremacy by the time I die. Like that would be a fool's bet. I would love it to happen. And yeah. I also am no, smart enough to know it isn't going to, and I don't know any black people who think it's going to happen in that time. I don't know right. any brown folks who think it's going to happen in that time. But you know what? They do the work anyway, because the way I look right. at it is, I don't know, and I'll be honest, you know, Derek Bell, the father of or grandfather of critical race theory, talked about this in his book, Faces at the Bottom of the Well. He wrote, and he got a lot of pushback for it, mm-hmm. um, mostly from white folks, which was interesting, because as a black scholar, he, what he said, you'd think black people would get discouraged by it, but it wasn't black folks. He said that he he said flat out in the book, like racism is in all likelihood a permanent feature of American society, never to be fully conquered. And I remember when the book came out in the mid 90s, early 90s, 93, I think I was uh, a couple years later, I was on the road speaking and a lot of students were reading the book for class and they were so indignant. They just were. How can he be so pessimistic? That's just he's like he's giving up. I'm like, do you know him? Like, because I knew him and and. And Derek Bell was not giving up. He, you know, he, he, he wrote eloquently about the fact that you have to challenge authority, whether you're going to win or lose. You have, there, there's redemption in the struggle. And that yeah. was the history of the black freedom movement to him. He said, look, the, the redemption is not in the winning. You want to win, but that's not where right. redemption is. Redemption comes from the struggle. That's how you find your humanity. James Baldwin wrote about this. It's about becoming human by confronting the conundrum of life. It is about earning your death, Baldwin said, by confronting the conundrum of life. You earn your death by the way that you live. And so to me, it's always been more helpful to take that attitude. Like, do I want to see white supremacy? And well, of course. Do I think it can? Yes, I think it can. But I'm okay with what Derek Bell is saying, because let's say Derek Bell's right. Let's say that there is some god who, who next week decides, like, all right, I'm tired of playing around with these fools, and just decides to write in the clouds, like, guys, like, white supremacy is permanent because you guys have screwed it up, and I'm not intervening because it's up to you, and you can't do it. You're obviously incompetent. White supremacy is never going away. Um, 
so good luck and God bless, you know, or mm-hmm. me bless or whatever. Like, I, I wish I wish you well, but you're not going to do it. You're obviously awful people, and I shouldn't have even created you. Like, let's just let's just say that there was evidence. We knew for a fact that it was never yeah. going to go away. What does that mean? Does that mean that we just are like, oh, well, you know, this anti-racism thing had a good run. I'm going to go bowling now. Like, no, like you, right. you still do the work because – the work redeems your humanity. What you're here for 80 years if you're lucky, 90 years if you're yeah. really lucky, 120 years if you're if you're Kirk Douglas or whatever, you know. But but you know you you, you have a certain amount of time hmm. on this earth. You might as well spend some significant portion of it doing the one thing that makes you human and the one thing that differentiates you from every other species on earth what is that thing well it's not that humans are necessarily smarter i know we like to think that but other species don't poison their own land base we're the only one that does that so maybe we're not that smart we're not the only one that's altruistic other other species have been shown and proven to act in altruistic ways uh unself-interested ways so it's not that so what's the one thing the only thing I can think of that really makes human beings different, unless you want to take it into like a religious and spiritual perspective, and I'm not taking it there, yeah. but, but, but it, the only thing that makes us different is that we're the only species in the history of the world, to my knowledge, that is ever organized collectively for liberation. And not just our own liberation, but even the liberation of others. Like, like the animal rights movement had to be started by which animal? us like the mink Mm -hmm. didn't do it themselves like it's not a criticism of the mink or the bunnies or or any other animal but like humans did that so so there is a so if the one thing that makes you different is your ability to organize collectively for liberation or organize for collective liberation who are you not to do that like who are are you to say yeah the one thing that makes me different i think i'm just going to take a pass on that like no that's the one thing you had one job right and and so to me, um, whether it's going to happen or not, I hope it does sooner the better. But I think we will be healthier, and I think we will be more effective at doing the work if we take the attitude that you know what, this may never change. But now what? I still got to do what I got to do because that's what it is to be on this earth. That's what it is to earn my death. That's what it is to to justify all the oxygen that I'm taking up right now. And that I've taken all the resources that I've used that maybe somebody else could have used better, right? I'm going to justify my time on this earth by the way that I decide to live. And once you take that attitude, so you, you don't get burned out, you know, thinking, oh, my God, nothing's changing. All right, it might never change, but so what? It's Wednesday. Get up and, and get back and do the do the thing, you know? <laughs> like, You're right about everything. What what else can I say? I mean, it's it's true. I think – that the more people become aware and the more, like you say, we, we change the education system to teach not only emotional intelligence, but all the things that we, we spoke about before, then which we're, we have it going on from the bottom up, if you will. Yeah. And if there's, you know, if there's a group of us working at the other end, then, you know, that's all we can do is, is give, it a, give it all we have. You know, yeah. and uh, yeah. Yeah. it's not so great to be American, but it is great to be human. Yeah. And I think that's what we have to strive for now. Thank you so much for giving me oh, the extra time, for being here. You it's bet. a pleasure to have you on my show. Um, Absolutely. If you all go to the go you will see, be able to listen to the show. There will be all links to Tim's website, Twitter. You have to watch him on YouTube. There's so many different talks that I found to be fascinating. 
educational and uh, it, it, they're wonderful to watch. I'm not the only Thank one either. You. As you mentioned, there's several million people tapping into them. Your book, Dispatches from the Race War, masterpiece. There you the go. Holidays. I agree. I agree. I got two kids in college. Buy my books, please. That, exactly, because it's this is really this is a textbook of you know buying a bunch and then dropping them off at the churches. There you go. Do that <laughs> by all means, please. Right? I and appreciate then filming that. and getting a, opinions. Yeah. But um, I think you know really it's important for you guys to get the book. And I just want to end with one of your quotes, Tim, which is so beautiful: "To accept racism." is uh, quintessentially American. To rebel against it is human. Be human. We have more than enough Americans already. Thank you for that. That says it all. Thank you so much. You're welcome back Thank anytime. You. I hope you'll come. Thank Absolutely. you again for everything you do in the world to make it better. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it.